have you ever gotten a real deal love letter? You know, like handwritten, on paper, in an envelope, stamped, you pick it up, smells slightly of perfume or cologne. You ever gotten one of those? It, it, it's, it's become far more rare than it used to be due to easy modes of electronic communication. Debbie and I had a, had a pretty short courtship. I've told you that story before. Um, and, and so we, we were separated for a summer for about five days a week. She was in Joplin. I was in rural southeast Kansas. And, uh, you know, typically by the time you'd get the letter written and send it, like, I'm going to see you again before it would get there. So uh, we, would, we just talked on the phone uh, all day. So we don't have, I don't have like a stash of love letters from Debbie. She doesn't have one from me that we could look back on. Um, but a couple years before I met Deb, I thought I got a real honest-to-goodness love letter. I, I, I really believe, I mean, initially, I thought, oh, my. And what was really interesting was I wasn't dating anyone at the time. I was at junior high church camp at Sayokamo Christian Camp. And, you know, they, did the, they do the mail call thing where they read off the, and they hand out the, if you get mail at camp, and usually they, you know, dunk you in the pool or something if you get uh, more than three. Um, and, and, and they read my name, you know, which was weird because I, I, it was, Sayokamo was really close to where I grew up, and I, like, who would send me a letter here? You know, it just, it didn't make sense. I could drive home in 25 minutes. Um, but they, they read it, and it was addressed to Casey Hot Lips Scott. <laughs> Nobody calls me that. Even now. And there was like lipstick marks all over it, and it smelled nice. And I, they call it, and of course, it's junior high camp, so everybody there is like, ooh. And I walk up there, and I take it, and I, uh, what in the world? And I open up. It was from my roommate in college. Um, Ken, uh, thanks, man. Uh, I think he was hoping I'd get dunked in the pool or something, so I don't know. Today, I want to look at a real-life love letter. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Thank you for being here today. For those of you joining us online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. Please, uh, either if you're here in the room or online, take a second and fill out your connection card. Uh, that just helps us stay connected. We want to partner with you in prayer for the things you're concerned about. Uh, grateful for those of you who do that faithfully each week online. Help us uh, disciple you digitally uh, through this season. So please uh, stay connected with us that way. A couple things to let you know about. Uh, tonight at 545 here in this room, we're having a prayer meeting. Uh, there's been a, a group here in the church that's been doing this appreciative inquiry process, and we're kind of at a point where we really need to discern God's will for how this thing should go forward. And so we're just going to meet tonight at 545 to, for an hour to pray about that. And if you've been part of those appreciative inquiry groups, you're invited, even if you haven't and you want to just come and pray for God's will, we'd love to have you join us uh, for that. Uh, we will have child care. And you're like, why 545? Because our uh, youth like life groups are teenage life groups meet from 5.30 to 7. So if you've got kids in those groups, I do, um, it's, it, you can drop them off, you come to the prayer meeting, and then you're, we're done in time to pick them up. So that's why the time is weird. You're like, what in the world? That's why. Uh, it's to facilitate that. But we will have child care uh, for birth through kindergarten is going to be in ED 11 down the other end of the hall, and then uh, elementary age is going to be in fellowship hall in uh, FH 13. So speaking of kids, if you brought your baby bottle back, 
Uh, you can drop it off at the kiosk in the lobby. If you didn't get one over the last couple weeks since Mother's Day, uh, you're welcome to pick one up. It's something we do every year from Mother's Day to Father's Day to support uh, Life Centers and their mission. Uh, if you've been tracking with the news, I'm sure you're very much aware that their mission may very well expand dramatically or change in the very near future. And, uh, and, and we don't know exactly what the future holds that way, so supporting that ministry is, is more crucial than it's ever been. And you can uh, help do that uh, with those baby bottles. Uh, we're starting a new series today called Love, John. And this is a series from the first letter of the Apostle John. He wrote three, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. The second two are, are much more occasional in nature, much more targeted. We're just going to look at the first uh, letter. This is the same John uh, that wrote the gospel that bears his name. This is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation. He's the brother of James, one of the so-called sons of thunder, right? But Jesus, he, he ultimately earns a new nickname. He becomes known as the beloved disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. That's not to say Jesus didn't love the others. He certainly did. But John seems to have been especially close to Jesus, it was John at the Last Supper who was right in front of Jesus and was able to lean his head back on Jesus' chest and ask, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? When you say, that, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? It was this John. It was to John that Jesus said from the cross, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Entrusting his mother's care to his beloved disciple. And it was this same John who, near the end of his life, somewhere around 85 to 90 AD, we don't know exactly when, writes this love letter to the church. The beloved apostle is writing to those he loves. Now, these are people known personally to him in what used to be called by the Romans Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey, right? But he's also writing to the broader community of Christ around the world. And he is laboring in love to persuade them to reject the false claims of these pre-Gnostic heretics. Let me explain that. Gnosticism is a belief that there's some kind of secret knowledge that you can get that helps you draw closer to the Lord. Th those, that Gnosticism really came into its own through the second century and into the third, the 100s to, to 200s, early 200s AD. That's before John lived, or that's after John lived. But the roots of it were present even in John's time. And those, those heretical beliefs, those unorthodox think, thoughts, were starting to percolate through John's time. And he's trying to keep the church from going down that road. All right? And he wants them to become that which, by God's grace, God enables them to be. See, here's the point. This was written a long time ago to a church far, far away. But we all still need to read this love letter because I think it's also written to us. And so for the next few weeks, we will. Now, John is going to use a couple specific words down through the letter. Um, they're words of direct address. Two different terms that, that gets used. One is the Greek word technion, which means my little child, right? It's what you say to your little kid or grandkid when they crawl up in your lap. I love you, mama. I love you, papa, right? It, it's, it's that. It, it's this, this it's term of very, very uh, close, warm, intimate, familial love, right? He'll also use another one, agapetas, which is it, it often translated in older translations, dearly beloved. 
it, it's a word, again, it's a word of very close uh, love and friendship. This is this, wow, you are so close to me. And he uses these two words somewhat interchangeably. But you're going to see it in the, in the sermon title, Dear Ones, every week. Dear Ones, and it, it's kind of an amalgamation of the two, kind of blending the two together. Because he uses it interchangeably, but he, he uses it the same way every time. It's a structural device to show when he's emphasizing a new idea or, or kind of a new tack on a familiar idea. So we're, we're going to read the text. I'm going to start in verse 5. Like, why aren't you starting in verse 1? Because verse 1 through 4 is basically a recapitulation of the Gospel of John. If you want to understand verse 1 through 4, just go reread John's Gospel, because that's basically what it is. It's a restatement of the Gospel. Look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, him, of course, being Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the, the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, before we go any further, there's something I want to tell you about the way that John's letters work, okay? John does not write like the Apostle Paul. They have very different styles of writing, okay? The Apostle uh, Paul, when he writes, it's like he's following a blueprint, right? It's, it's a much more Western style of communication. There's a very clear outline, point A, sub point one, sub sub point A. I mean, like it's, you, can, you can outline Paul's letters quite easily. It, it's very Western, very linear in his thinking. That is not the way John writes. It, it, to give you an analogy, um, you know, John writes much more in like an Eastern philosophical sense. So let me give you an analogy. Paul's letters are like blueprints, right? You just, you follow the plan. You follow the outline. John's letters are more like ripples in a pond. So you, you like, what happens when you chuck a, a rock into a body of water, right? It, it ripples out, 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 out. That's kind of the way John's letters are. He keeps coming back to these same themes over and over and over again. He uses the same words over and over and over again. In Bible college or seminary, when someone takes uh, the first semester Greek class, they start translating John's work because it's the vocabulary is really simple in, in the sense of limited. He doesn't use a lot of different words. It's not like reading Luke or Matthew. 
he just, but he's very, he's very deep. He's writing this toward the end of his life, all right? You know, he, he just, he kind of throws these ideas out there and he just lets the ripples widen. And so you'll hear it like, it's like, didn't he just say this? Yes, but he's coming back to that theme. It, this is the ripple in the pond. He's just, he's coming back to it. it it's, it's widening out, okay? And by the way, that's the way revelation works too, but that's a sermon for another time. So what's he doing here? Well, the main rock he throws out in this first love letter centers around the idea of some very important claims. What John is saying here is that when we experience the claims of Jesus' true love for us, we find real freedom. That's the big idea this morning. When we experience the, the, the claims of Jesus' true love for us, we find real freedom. John is saying, dear ones, it's a love letter. Dearly beloved, live free. See, the essence of a love letter is a series of claims, isn't it? I love you more than life itself. Right? That every moment we're separated feels like an eternity. Right? When you're with me, I feel like Superman, and when you're apart, it's like I'm holding kryptonite. You know what I mean? Like whatever it is that jazzes up your relationship. I don't know. Um, there's, there's a claim that gets made here. And in this initial letter, John is responding to these heretical, these unorthodox anti-claims, and he's trying to prevent this pre-Gnostic heresy out there from taking hold in this church of people that he loves. And he's trying to do that with the claims of true love. There are three claims of true love in this text. Here's the first one, that we're free to walk in the light. The first claim of true love is that we're free to walk in the light. John says God is light. Now, this is not new information for his audience. Right? There are a lot of other contemporary Jewish texts, especially in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that used uh, this light-darkness image to contrast the, the followers of righteousness, i.e. the light, from the followers and participants of wickedness, i.e. darkness. It was also really common in John's day to refer to this idea of obeying God's commands as walking in them. In fact, this idea filters down all the way to the end of the passage. If I were to translate 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, the last verse of our text today, literally it would be this. The one who says he abides in him, Jesus, ought himself to walk in the way just as he, meaning Jesus, walked. The NIV translates it, live as Jesus lived, and that's, that's, that's not wrong, but it, it, it's literally walk as Jesus walked, is how the text, and the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version kind of bring that out, that we're supposed to walk in this way. That was a normal way of speaking for John's audience. And that's just prologue, though, to say that there's this group in John's day who said, well, my soul is righteous, Right? So it doesn't matter what I do with my body. There, there was a group in John's day that said, God has justified my soul. It doesn't really matter what I do with my body. He's going to destroy it anyway. Who cares? You're like, man, that sounds like, huh, like vaguely familiar. That Gnostic heresy is still floating around, y'all. It's still out there. We still need this letter. Because there's a whole group of people that call themselves Christians. They made a one-time decision for Jesus. They prayed this prayer. Maybe they got baptized. They went to church as a kid. And they figure, I'm good. I'm set. It doesn't really matter how I live. 
because I made a decision. God did this thing. Does that sound familiar? We still need this. John is like, no, no. No, if you claim to have fellowship with God but do wickedness, you're lying. He just calls them on it. He says the claim that John makes is that we're free to walk in the light because we have real fellowship with Jesus. Now, light throughout the Bible is a, is a, a massively important word, and you've got to look at how the author is using it to understand what they mean. Because often it means something that's good or something that's true or something that's pure or something that's holy. But he, when John uses the word light, he is talking about something that's more akin to the, what we would use the phrase eternal life. When John uses the word light, he, he almost inevitably connects it to God. He says God is light, right? That's, he says that. And what, he say, what he's saying is that God lives in eternal life and light. Over and over and over again, when John talks about light, he's making this connection to the eternal life of God. And he says that we need to walk in the light Yes, it's truth, and yes, it's holiness, but what he's saying is to live out the, the life of God, the eternal life of God that he put in you when you accepted Christ, when you acknowledged him as Savior and Lord and were baptized and the Holy Spirit came into you. God's eternal life entered into you in that moment. And he's saying you need to walk in that. They were free to walk in the light. See, John is picking up on this ancient line of thought that Jesus developed through his ministry. This goes way back. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, we read, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That was written 2,500 years or more before John wrote his letter. This would have sounded familiar to John's audience and maybe even caught in the ear of Jesus' audience when Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12b, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is he talking about truth and revelation there? No, he's talking about having God's eternal life in you that you get to live each day. See, because of the work of Jesus, you are free to walk in righteousness. You are free to live every day with the eternal life of God flowing out of you. And I believe that John is telling us today in love <laughs> that if you don't do that, your fellowship with God is lacking. That your relationship with him is not what it could be. So if you hear a loving rebuke in this, that's intentional. That's the point. That's <laughs> what John is trying to do. He, he's saying, listen, you are carrying around some darkness that you shouldn't be carrying. Two Buddhist monks, an older master and his young apprentice were traveling through some pretty rough country one day and they came to a fast flowing river and at the banks of the river was this young woman she looked pretty weak and had a very terrified look on her face she needed to cross but the river the stream was fast and and so the older monk without a moment's hesitation walked over to her picked her up bodily and he was an older stout stocky guy and just crossed the river he set her down on the other side bowed to her and carried on his way the younger monk who was with him and crossed the river alone walked along beside his master for a long while and you could see his face was just scowling and you could tell something was building in this guy 
And finally, he ran around in front of his master and put his finger in his chest. He said, how could you do that, master? You know our rule. You know that we're not supposed to touch a woman. How could you break your vow like that? And he said, my brother, I left that woman at the banks of the river. It's you that's been carrying her for the last three miles. You ever do that? You ever carry something you're not supposed to carry? That's walking in darkness, John says. I love the way John Stott put it. John Stott, the great British pastor and scholar, writes, What is clear is that if we walk in the light, God has made provision to cleanse us from whatever sin would otherwise mar our fellowship with him or each other. When your fellowship with Jesus is rich, it will enhance your fellowship with his people. And you'll really be free to walk in the light, to just let the eternal life of God that dwells in you by your decision to follow Jesus overflow out of you. That's the first claim. Here's the second. That we're free to confess our sins. We're free to confess our sins. During a Sunday school class, Renee Carlton was trying to teach the children in her class, they're, you know, upper grade school age kids, that we, we can confess our sins, that we, and we should do that. And when we do wrong, we should admit it. We should confess it. And, and she's, you know, so after the Bible story, she asked one of the girls in the class, Lisa, can you think of a time that you might need to confess? <laughs> Lisa just went, like, shut down, right? I'm, I'm plead the fifth. I'm not going to say a word. Blank stare, right? Just going back. And there's this moment of uncomfortable silence. And Renee's young son, Mark, was in the class, and she, he, he looked at Lisa. He says, it's okay, Lisa. You don't have to tell her. He said, Mom, this isn't the Oprah Winfrey show. We don't have to tell you our problems. John is saying that we don't have to do this. He's saying we get to do this. We're free to do this. The second false claim, I think, which actually keeps us ensnared, it keeps us enslaved to our sin, somewhat counterintuitively, is that we don't have any sin. That, that was what the claim that these people were making was, I haven't done anything wrong. There was this group in John's day going around claiming that they didn't have any sins. Now, they would acknowledge that they had, had done something wrong, but they would say that, well, but the sin principle, as it's listed here in the text, doesn't have any hold over me, I, that, that I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, addicted to it. They denied that it had power over them or had a presence in them. And this runs totally counter to everything the Bible says about the human condition. In fact, John is telling us that the only way to be free is to confess the sins that we commit. As long as you try to cover it up or fanatically insist that you didn't do anything wrong, it owns you. I'm going to say that again. When you refuse to confess or try to insist that what you did is not wrong, it owns you. Scripture provides a way to be free, though. Psalm 32, verse 5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Walking in Christian freedom is demonstrated not by the denial of sin's reality in your life, but by confessing it and abandoning it. John says you are free to do that. 
He even says, my dear children. That's the word. In this case, technion. Right? It's a word that for a person of any age for whom there's a special relationship of endearment and association. So, I mean, it can be any age. It was usually used of little, you know, kids. Your, your, your babies, your grandbabies. Now, you also have to remember John's about in like 90 by this point. So, like, everybody's a kid to him, okay? <laughs> My dear children, he says, I'm writing to this to you so that you won't sin. He says, you're free to confess it and be done with it. If you try to insist that what God says is wrong really isn't sin, the only person you're fooling is you. And John says, you are free. You're free to confess this and and get rid of its hold on you, get rid of its claim on you. So so how how do you experience this freedom? How do you express this freedom? Maybe you could write a love letter this week. Like an actual, by hand, on real paper, in an envelope, and stamp it and send it, a a letter of love and repentance. If there's somebody you've hurt, especially if they know you hurt them and you just haven't owned up to it yet, confess it. Write them a love letter. and, and, And tell them, I hurt you. What I did was wrong. I acknowledge that. I'm, I'm trying to live like Jesus. He's perfect. I'm not, and I blew it here. Will you please forgive me? I am so sorry. Love, your name. One way to do this, to confess this, is, is write a love letter this week. Like an actual, you know how much, you know, when you sort through the mail, what is that experience like? Junk, 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 bill. Junk, 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 bill letter, card, instantly you have their attention. Do that. Write a love letter this week. You're free to confess your sin. That's the second claim. Here's the third one. We're free to enjoy forgiveness. We're free to enjoy forgiveness. John tells us that we have an advocate with God, Jesus, the one who has taken our sin upon himself and crucified it on the cross. He stands before the Father pleading our case on our behalf because he's the only one who can and he loves you. And that advocacy is what enables us to enjoy forgiveness. Now, John is very clear here about what we we mean by forgiveness, This is not enjoying forgiveness in the same way that the Gnostics did, where they went out there and sinned like a big dog and then pretended like it was no big deal. That's not what we're talking about, all right? Enjoying forgiveness means treasuring righteousness so that we regularly walk in righteousness. John is telling us this morning that the belief that you can't go a day without sinning is a lie from the pits of hell. I'm going to say that again because I know some of you take notes. The belief that you, can, you cannot go 24 hours without committing a sin is a lie from the pits of hell. The enemy wants to keep you defeated. He wants to keep you depressed. He wants to keep you down, ineffective, and weak in your Christian life. And John is telling you, you are free to enjoy the forgiveness that you have in Jesus and the righteousness that that creates in your life. Enjoy it. (laughs) Walking in righteousness is is a place of joy. It's not a burden. It's not about God giving you a little wink every time you commit a sin. 
Instead, it's about looking with love into the eyes of Jesus and walking in the same path that he himself walked in. Righteousness. See, this third false claim that some make is a claim to know Jesus, but not obey his commands. That's a lie. Anyone who claims to follow Jesus and then sins with callous abandon is, and is not repentant and contrite is a liar. They're not a true brother or sister in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Church, I think some people are so accustomed to the cheap grace that so often floats through the evangelical subculture that this statement of Jesus sounds, it sounds harsh and unrealistic to them. And I'm going, the reason it sounds harsh and unrealistic to you is that you have accepted a lie. You have believed this false claim that you can't walk in righteousness. Jesus says this because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. (laughs) So when people inevitably ask, "How, how could he say that? How could he mean that? That's, that's so harsh. That's so cruel. My response is this. Do you have children? Or if I know that they don't or can't, do you have parents? Because the answer to that one is yes. Because we know if you have kids, you know this feeling, right? As a parent, you know this feeling. Just do what I said. Your life is going to be so much better if you just do what I said. Do you think God isn't up in heaven feeling the exact same way? Just do what I said. We're like, my life is so hard. You're not obeying. Try that first. Listen, his love for us is unconditional. And it doesn't change based on the degree to which we obey him. Though I would hasten to add that it stands to reason that he absolutely gives himself more. He gives more of his presence, the awareness of his presence to those who walk in righteousness. I'm telling you this, and I think this is, this is borne out in 1 John. God gives the awareness of his presence, the, the sense of feeling close to God, more to those who walk in the light. If you don't feel close to God this morning, guess who moved? His love for us is unconditional, but it is not inconsistent for him, for the Lord to put conditions on our love for Jesus. Live free or die is the official motto of the state of New Hampshire. It's likely that the phrase was adapted from a toast written by General John Stark. He was New Hampshire's most famous soldier in the Revolutionary War on July 31st, 1809. Poor health forced him to miss a reunion of those who fought at the Battle of Bennington, And so instead, he sent his toast by letter. This was the whole thing. It was the whole letter. Live free or die. Death is not the worst of evils. Jesus called his disciples to die to themselves so that they could enjoy the kind of life that God himself has, a life free from sin. Here's what this claim means. 
that Jesus' sacrifice frees us from sin. You are free. Dear ones, he says, live free. You don't have to give in to it anymore. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, you don't have to be wracked by guilt for looking at something you shouldn't look at because his resurrection life nullifies its power over you. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, you don't have to go to work with a pounding headache every Monday because of what you drank the weekend before. Because his resurrection life in you allows you to drink deeper of the spirit than any bottle of spirits could ever provide. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, you don't have to share the spicy gossip that you heard from your neighbor because his resurrection life that lives inside you is a much more compelling story and God gives you the opportunities and the ability to share that story. Did you hear me? When we experience the claims of Jesus' true love for us, we find real freedom. So you have the opportunity to come and find freedom today. Maybe you need to be free from sin in, in, in the first and ultimate sense and be baptized to acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord, have him wash away your sins, receive the Holy Spirit to continually make you clean before Almighty God. You have an opportunity to do that as we sing. I invite you to come forward, and, and we'll do that today. We're ready. The water's warm. Towels are dry. We're good to go. Maybe you need a prayer partner to join you in the work of confession and repentance. We'd love to partner with you to do that. This is not something that we, we do a whole lot, but if you need someone to hear a confession, to get it out, to drag that sin out into the light, kicking and screaming where it can die, we would hear your confession today. If you want to confess it and be free during this time, Pastor Fred and I will be down here. Uh, elders are close by. I'd be happy to do that for you. I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and you respond as God leads you today. Let's sing together.